Welcome to First Presbyterian Church of Evanston. This Sunday sermon was given by Reverend Amanda Goldbeck. If you'd like more information about First Presbyterian Church of Evanston, please visit firstpresevanston.org. Our scripture reading today is from the Apostle Paul's second letter to the Corinthians, chapter 12, verses 7 through 10, which you will find in the New Testament section of our Q Bibles, beginning on page 177 or on screen. Please join me in a prayer of illumination. God, Would you open our hearts and minds by the power of your Holy Spirit? As the scriptures are read and your word is proclaimed, would you help us hear with joy what you say to us today? Amen. Second Corinthians 12, verse 7. Therefore, To keep me from being too elated, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me, to keep me from being too elated. Three times I appealed to the Lord about this, that it would leave me. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for power is made perfect in weakness. So I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities for the sake of Christ. For whenever I am weak, then I am strong. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, First Evanston. What a privilege to stand in this place with this family, uh, to know of your witness over the years, uh, even as a kid in Dallas, Texas, in a Presbyterian church way down south, I heard of First Evanston uh, for the ways that you led our denomination in new ways of engaging in mission. And I'm really glad to be here uh, with you today. We chose today a text that is not, uh, that is not pleasing to the ears. It's not an easy text. And I'd like us to uh, turn to God to get the strength and the openness of heart that we need to be able to hear God's word in this moment. Would you pray with me? God, we look out our windows, we read our newspapers, and we know things are not the way they should be. And you create in us a holy anxiety, a desire for something different, something more. Each one of us seeking to reach out and to change the world in some way. Give us the strength, the courage, and the humility to hear your word and to do it. We pray in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. It's a gift to be with you uh, this morning this beautiful Chicago morning. I'm thinking 
It would take a much better biblical scholar than I to plumb the depths of this text, which addresses one of the secrets of this upside-down realm of God that we read about so consistently in the pages of Scripture. It's not only the poor, the marginalized, those who suffer. Somehow they seem to be very close to the heartbeat of God in God's realm. We see that consistently in Scripture. But we sense in ourselves that when we are very much with our backs against the wall, when we have no other way that we can, can do the work that we have before us, when we feel there's no hope around us, it's in that moment when we feel particularly close the presence and the power and the mercy of God. When we're in deep water and don't think we can make it on our own, it's at that moment we turn to God. So Paul's experience of Jesus Christ was through this door of suffering, and he often reflects, especially in his stormy relationship with that young church in Corinth, he reflects on the power and the kindness and the beauty of God through that lens of marginality, of being cast to the side of human history with your back against the wall. Biblical scholars have for centuries pondered what could he mean by that thorn in the flesh? Was it a chronic illness, a speech impediment? What, what was it that, that made him the butt of jokes in the Corinthian church that seemed to sap his strength, discourage him consistently? We simply don't know. Scripture doesn't tell us that. But that experience of marginality gave to Paul a precious gift. It gave to him an antidote, if you will, to his own pride, the pride that his own impressive pedigree might have given him, or his status as a Pharisee, someone who has arrived, who had everything he needed. And yet, it was that thorn in the flesh that caused him to see the gospel message through a different lens, through that lens of, of marginality. As we begin our reflections this morning, I'd like to invite you to think about the ways that First Presbyterian Church in Evanston has been engaging in mission across the street, across town and around the world. And I'd invite you to think about the ways that you have been involved personally in God's mission, whether local or international. When we think about the ways that Carol Weinberg and your mission committee have led you in mission, I want to suggest we look through that lens of marginality, of folks from the outside looking in, folks who've been cast into the shadows. What I love about this church, and I've known about, it, known about it in you for decades, is your deep desire to make a difference in the world. You look around you and you see the headlines, and you know that this world is not the way it should be. You see injustices and you are moved to prayer, to reflection, to organizing, and to action. Well, let's break down a little bit this call to be engaged with God in the change of the world. What would you say are the qualities then that enable someone to make a difference in the world? What would those qualities be for you? The number one quality to, to be able to change the world, what would it would take? I might start my list, I guess, with a, an, a willingness to sacrifice. You've got to be able to put yourself out there. You've got to be able to offer yourself to the world in ways that we've seen throughout mission history going back 2,000 years. I think about Dr. Don Carlson, an evangelical covenant church missionary 
who, because of his love for the Congolese people, refused to leave his post in 1964, when in that new, newly independent nation, as it exploded into violence and conflict, Simba, Simba rebels moved in on his hospital, but he continued to do his work of healing and refused to leave his post, and he was killed. That's a deep level of sacrifice that we see consistently in the pages of mission history, and we give thanks to God for that. But besides sacrifice, that, that sense of self-sacrifice, what, what would we say would be a characteristic that could help make a difference in the world? Perhaps it's strength of character. I think about Mother Teresa and that long obedience in the same direction, each day getting up and moving into situations that would turn our stomachs, frankly. And yet each day she said yes to God, got up and moved into service to the poor in Calcutta. She had the strength to do what few of us might imagine doing. Well, those are two important qualities, self-sacrifice and that strength of character. And we're already saying, that ain't me, Lord, that ain't me, right? I'm, I'm feeling that myself. Could it be uh, the capacity to persevere, someone who consistently does the work? I think about Mariah Fearing. Uh, she was born into slavery in Alabama in the 1830s. She didn't learn to read and write until she was age 33. She applied for missionary service to the Southern Presbyterian Church, which in its wisdom refused her application, but she refused to take no for an answer. So she went back. She told them that she was still going to be going to the, uh, serve the people of Congo, and she asked for their permission. They gave her a blessing, but they wouldn't give her any help. This was not uncommon for many uh, black uh, applicants for mission service in those years. But because she refused to take no for an answer, she raised money among black congregations throughout the South. She got on a sailing ship for the first time in her life. She sailed to what was then the Congo Free State, now Democratic Republic of Congo. She traveled up country 500 miles, and she learned the Chiluba language so well that she became one of the translators for a version of the Bible, a translation of the Bible that is today used by more than two million Chiluba speakers across central Congo. Throughout her life, Maria Fer Mariah Faring kept on persevering. Well, all of these qualities would be really important if you wanted to change the world, right? We, we see that, the willingness to sacrifice, that strength of character, and even the willingness to persevere. All those would be important. But I would argue that from this text today, we see something even deeper, because many of us would look around the room and say, you know what, I'm no Mother Teresa. I just, I'm not in that all-star cast of people who have all the gifts and all the skills needed to do that mighty work of God in the world. Along with these qualities, though, which I think are important, I think there's one that Paul would signal to us very quickly in the conversation. The impact of a Christian's life, Paul would tell us, is directly related to their awareness of their own brokenness, their own inability, and their willingness to put themselves in a place where God can use them anyway. This is the experience that I've had over the past 35 years, recruiting and sending missionaries such as Carol Weinberg. The most impactful people were not the ones who strutted in and had the best resumes, who were the most qualified for the work, 
who walked in with confidence and said, here I am, Lord, send me. But the people who said, do you think it could be me? Do you think I could be the one who could do this task? I don't think I can. But with God's help, maybe I can. The people who say yes anyway to God, those were the missionaries I was looking for as we recruited and trained and sent missionaries into the world through the Presbyterian Church. This shouldn't be a surprise to you. You've read scripture, you've studied scripture, you know. God chooses not the powerful nations of Egypt or Assyria to change the world, but a tiny, weak Israel to be God's people in the world. God chooses not the older, more stately sons of Jesse, as we heard in the children's sermon, but rather lowly David, the sheep herder, right? the smelly one in, in, the, in that range of sons of Jesse. When God sends himself into the world through his son, he doesn't send a king or even a 4.0 GPA seminary graduate. Who does he send but a brown-skinned son of a carpenter who becomes a refugee early in his life, is chased into a country not his own, and learns immediately the lens of marginality, looking from the bottom up. Jesus calls his disciples, it's not the powerful princes of that day, but rather a ragtag group of fisher folk, tax collector, a political extremist, and others. They're the ones who become that beginning of that spreading circle of love that reaches into all the world. This is mission in the way of Jesus, mission from the bottom up. It's the Son of Man, God himself, who takes a knee and begins to wash the feet of the disciples around him. You know in our text that Paul surprises us. Paul, who had every reason to boast, he had the, the, the best resume out there. He could have gotten any job, you see, because he was, as you know, a Pharisee, a Roman citizen, and in his own words, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. How many of you have put that in your job application, right? It's just not something we would say about ourselves. Paul knew that he was A plus, right? And yet he recognized that God used him most powerfully through his weakness. So I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. I've got a confession to make to you this morning, Evanston. I'm not there. I don't, I don't give thanks to God daily for the insults that I receive, for the pain that I feel, for my inability to, to connect with people. I don't, I don't give thanks on a routine basis. I have to be reminded to give thanks in those moments. But my heart knows that God seems to be particularly active in the margins of human history, not the center. And that's how the first Christian communities formed, as we know. In 1 Corinthians, we see Paul says, consider your own call, brothers and sisters. Not many of you were wise according to the wisdom of the world. Not many were powerful. Not many of you were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, the things that are not, to reduce to nothing the things that are, 
so that no one might boast in the presence of God. God consistently through scripture uses those weak things like you and me to confound the powerful so that no one can boast, so that none of us think too highly of ourselves, so that it's not Hunter's mission, but God's mission. That's, that's pretty important in this enterprise, isn't it? You and I both know that Christian mission has not always been carried out in a, uh, a spirit of humility. We know that uh, the European nation states in the uh, late 14th and 15th centuries began to venture out into the world on sailing ships. And they justified their theft of native lands, of human beings, and of natural resources by inviting priests and chaplains onto their boats and giving a cover, a moral cover, uh, for that doctrine of discovery. The gospel of Jesus Christ became deeply compromised with the colonizer's political and economic agenda, and it complicated our mission history tremendously. There's a whole section of the church that doesn't even want to hear the word mission because they, they smell that colonial spirit, that high and mighty, that mission from a, sense, a, a space of power. And even to millions of people outside our faith, to Muslims and to Hindus, to indigenous peoples all over the world, Christian mission is synonymous with colonialism, forced conversion, Native American children being brainwashed, notions of white supremacy that privilege European ways of being over other people's ways of being. Colonial mission was top-down mission, mission from a position of power and control that fed the streams of white supremacy and racism and that have compromised our witness to Jesus Christ in the world. The tragedy that continues today is that many of our congregations continue to engage in mission in ways that are informed more by that colonial spirit than by the spirit of Jesus Christ that takes a knee, that begins to lean into the work that God is doing from the bottom up in that community. I need to confess to you that I'm as guilty as anybody for engaging in this kind of colonially informed mission, if you will. It's so easy to do. It's what's framed in the publicity that we see in many of the programs that we watch on TV and movies. I was in my 20s when I began work as a mission worker of the Presbyterian Church in what's now the Democratic Republic of Congo. You'll have to excuse me, but I was missional hot stuff. I was so qualified for this position, the mission board didn't even know how qualified I was. I mean, I was, I was ready to go. I had a Master of Divinity in Cross-Cultural Studies at Fuller Seminary. I had advanced degrees in religious anthropology. I spoke different languages. But when Ruth and I went for work in the Congo, I was, it was like I was hit by a two-by-four across the head. I realized that in all that academic training, I had not done the spiritual training that my Congolese sisters and brothers did every day just to get out of bed in the morning because they knew something that I didn't. It requires a deep, resounding confidence in the power of God and not in your own power. People in our city struggle to survive on about $2 a day. And infant malnutrition and death was a daily reality. I had never in my life seen so many children die before their first birthday. 
And so, friends, it was a quick trip from missional hot stuff to an emotionally broken young man. I was hardly able to get out of bed in the morning because I had fallen through the trap door of mission. It was a hastily constructed understanding of mission, colonially informed, if you will, and it wouldn't bear the weight of the Congolese experience. I was overcome with a sense of hopelessness and inadequacy. But that's when it started. There was a knock at the door, and it was Bari Banga, the leader of the youth group at the church where Ruth and I worshipped. Bari Banga brought a group of young people, and they stayed the night with us, an overnight prayer vigil, to pray for healing and recovery. Suddenly, uh, Kihani, a student of mine at the seminary, I was teaching New Testament, and a student comes to me to pray for my healing. One of my students kept coming by day after day to pray. Slowly but surely, these students toppled my hierarchical understanding of mission. My students became my teachers. My juniors in the faith suddenly become my elders. The objects of my mission become the subjects in God's mission, pointing me back not to my strengths or to my qualifications, but rather to the sufficiency of God's grace through Jesus Christ. What I fear, friends, is that so many elements of our American can-do culture have merged with Jesus Christ's mission in a way that has taken us off stream. We, we've lost the mark in many ways in the ways we engage in mission through our congregations. So much of mission is done like a mission strut, where we walk into the community, we think we have the answers, we take our Ziploc bags with all the materials we'll need, we don't even need them to cook a meal for us. We're, we're fine, thanks, we've got everything we need. When God desires us to slow down, in fact, to drop our, to our knees, to realize that the heavy burdens on our shoulders are to be carried by the community and by God. Could it be, friends, that the heavy burdens that you feel today, maybe struggling in a job or the search for a job, maybe struggling in retirement, trying to accompany some friends who are facing health issues or issues of their own, could it be that this moment is an invitation to look deeper, to look back to the God who calls, who equips and empowers us to serve in every way? When First Evanston members feel the anxiety of sitting at table with folks who don't have a home, when you're serving in a shelter or a food bank, there's a temptation to pull back to get into that powerful mission position and, and just give them the food. Here's what you need. Here, please say thank you. That's a more comfortable position for me, right? But when we're invited to sit at table, to break bread with, to enter a space of mutual vulnerability, we have no idea what they might say to us. We have no idea what God might say to us through them. Your encounter with a young homeless mother on Lake Street here your head says, keep moving, don't get involved. But the Spirit says, wait. You say yes anyway to God, and you engage in conversation and are able to point that mother to some medical attention that she needs through the contacts that you have in your church. 
Even though gathering, even if gathering people is not your thing, you're not a leader, you just don't do that. If that's way outside your comfort zone, you say yes anyway, and you sign up for the mission committee's activity that will engage you in ways that you haven't been engaged before. It's a step out there. It's difficult to do, and yet we come from a people who have historically said yes anyway to a God who says yes anyway to us in Jesus Christ. Despite all of our weakness, despite our lack of faithfulness, God looks at us and says yes anyway in Jesus Christ to each one of us. Friends, as we gather as a Christian community, we remember that our place at God's table is not guaranteed, not guaranteed by our achievements or pedigree, but by the graciousness of the inviting God, the God who knows our brokenness and our shortcomings, our fears and our failures, and says to us, yes, anyway. This was modeled for me in a beautiful way by a Peruvian pastor by the name of David Pumacawa, who walked with his Presbyterian congregation up to the Highland Church uh, in, uh, in the, the town of Santa Barbara in Juan Cabalica. And he knew this was a very conflicted church. This was a church where the Shining Path Liberation Army and the Peruvian government had killed people in that community for the past 18 years. It was a long night of terror in that place. And Pastor Pumacawa, with great wisdom and a deep love for his people, leaned to me and said, Pastor Farrell, we're going to try something new today. And I grimaced because I knew that Presbyterians don't like anything new, <laughs> right? But he stepped into that space anyway. He goes to the center of the church. There were about 40 families present. He opens up the scriptures and he places them on the floor. And I'd never seen anyone in Peru put the scriptures on the floor in a sign potentially to be disrespected. He got everyone's attention, everyone's looking. And in that moment, he said this, he said, sisters and brothers, what's the one thing we must do each day to follow Jesus Christ? Silence. Presbyterians don't like test questions, right? So it was silence. But a young woman said, pastor, hay que seguirle a Jesús tomando paso a paso. We have to take one step after another, said uh, Maria Luisa, one of the children, in the, a young woman in the, in the group. And he said, then let's all take a step forward to the Word of God. So everyone, a little awkwardly, took one step closer. Now we're aware of each other's presence in that circle, and we're a little concerned because I know that my uncle betrayed Carol's brother, and Carol's brother was picked up by the police and disappeared. And so those, the, the fragmentation of that community had been happening on a weekly basis for 18 long years. And everyone in that room had a reason to hate someone else in the room. The broken relationships uh, were, were all around us. And yet, Pastor Pumakawa perseveres. He says, sisters and brothers, take another step towards the Word. Now we're all standing shoulder to shoulder around God's Word. And Pastor Pumakawa says, sisters and brothers, you can't take a step, close, a step closer to Jesus Christ without coming closer to your neighbor. And the spirit fell. And so Ana Luisa, an older mother in the congregation whose uh, husband had been betrayed, crosses the circle and embraces a family that she had, that had, been betray that had betrayed her, her husband. Um, 
these things began to happen and person after person crossed the circle and embraced a person with whom they had not spoken in perhaps years. It occurred to me in that moment that it is in our weakness, in our brokenness, in our inability to say even the words, I forgive you, that the Spirit can move, that God can take us to the next step and give us the power we need to offer forgiveness and to receive forgiveness. This is the power that comes to us through the inviting God, the sending God, the God who sends you into Evanston and Chicago and the world around us. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.